0: Hello, and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let's go back to the Thursday afternoon meeting between Mycroft and Watson that occurred the day before Watson and Sherlock headed up to Shropshire. I told you that Mycroft had asked Watson if he would accompany Sherlock, and Watson said yes. But there were some important details I didn't include in the last episode because I thought it made more sense to discuss them today. During that Thursday afternoon visit, Mycroft told Watson that if he wanted to go on this trip to Shropshire, he needed to be in control of Sherlock's morphine. The bottle had to be in Watson's possession at all times. When he went to bed at night, he needed to place it in a lockbox in his bedroom and he had to lock his bedroom door. In addition, Watson would be responsible for administering Sherlock's morphine injections. And at that point, Mycroft pulls the bottle out of his coat pocket and hands it to Watson. Along with that, he gives him a written list of instructions, a short list regarding the frequency of the dosages, the time of day, the amount of the dosage, etc. This was from Sherlock's surgeon. He had provided this information to Mycroft in writing, and Mycroft was passing it along. The instructions or requests from Mycroft didn't end there. He said, in addition, Watson, when you are traveling with Sherlock, whenever you're on a train with him or in a train station, I want him in your sight at all times. The only exception is when Sherlock has to use the toilet. Other than that, I want you to have your eyes on him. You must have him in your view whenever the train is stopped for any reason. So if you're at a station, you are not to let him leave the compartment unless you're going with him. Once the train starts up again, you can let him go. He can make some other reasonable request, and if you think it's appropriate, you can say yes. Now I understand that when you guys get to Bishop's Castle, when you get to your destination, Sherlock is going to want some freedom to do his research and his investigation, and that's fine, I understand that. He's not going to want you to accompany him, that's all predictable, understandable, that's okay. But you cannot let him leave the hotel with his luggage. He'll be taking a bag, a carpet bag, which is the equivalent nowadays of like a carry-on for an airline. Don't let him take it out of the hotel unless you're with him. So otherwise, it stays at the hotel. And when he's gone, you need to go through his luggage. you got to open it up and see what's in there. What you're looking for are large sums of money, drugs, or disguises. Do this when you have the chance, ideally once a day. And in particular, it's really important that you do this early on in the train trip home because that's when I'm most concerned that Sherlock will get his hands on a disguise and disappear. And then to his surprise, to Watson's surprise, Mycroft says, I've already covered it with him this morning. We brought in Sherlock's doctor, the surgeon, and we covered all this. And Sherlock agreed to it we want him to make this trip, we want him to get some information, and I'll explain why in a second. Watson says, why do you need him to take this trip? Why can't you send somebody else? Mycroft says, first of all, you've got to understand how much pressure is being applied to the government and to the police. It's almost impossible to describe the intensity. I've never seen anything like it. Scotland Yard is following every possible lead. And up to this point, up until very recently, they never took Sherlock's claim about the Moriarty brothers, the youngest Moriarty brother being the killer. They never took that seriously. They didn't believe it. But they've gotten to the point now where they do have to follow every lead. They have to satisfy the government. They have to satisfy the newspapers and the public that they're not ignoring any lead, no matter how skeptical they are. And that's why they have to go up to Shropshire or send somebody up to Shropshire to look into this. Now, the guy who runs Scotland Yard, this guy named Anderson, who's the head of Scotland Yard, the head of the CID, the head of the detectives, he said he was going to send his own people up to Shropshire. And Sherlock said no. Anderson needed information from Sherlock in order to follow up on this. And Sherlock said, I'm not going to give it to you. Either you send me up or allow me to go by myself or nobody's going. They were at an impasse, but then I, meaning Mycroft, stepped in and backed up Sherlock, partly because Sherlock's going to do a better job. I believe, Sherlock, I believe that there is some connection here with the Moriarty brothers. I don't know exactly what it is. I'm not sure that it's as violent and hands-on as Sherlock claims, but I think we need to follow up on this, and I do think that Sherlock has the best chance of getting this information. Watson asks, why are you taking such a huge risk? He might escape. If I let him go and do his reconnaissance and his field work and his, he disappears for six hours, how do I know he's going to come back? Mycroft replies, I'm willing to take that risk. All I can tell you is that we have also taken every possible precaution. I'm not going to give you details. If I tell you exactly what we're doing to keep tabs on Sherlock, he's going to get that information from you. I know he has a way of finding things out from you. I know he can just say something, look at your expression, look at your reaction, and that gives him an answer. It's not your fault. He's a genius at getting information out of people. He knows how to do it. And the fact is, the less you know, the less details you have, the less I have to worry about, the less chance there is that Sherlock will find out exactly what we plan and how we're keeping tabs on him. So just do what I have asked. Do what you are supposed to do. I've already explained it to you. Leave the rest to me. But Watson still isn't satisfied. He wants to know, why would Sherlock agree to this? Why wouldn't he try to run away? This isn't who he is. The idea that someone would control him and tell him where he could go and the whole thing would be humiliating. I can't imagine why he would agree. Here, Mycroft gives an interesting answer. He says, I wish you could have seen him this morning. I can't describe how unsettling it was to see him in that condition. There was none of the confidence, none of the cockiness. It was all gone. In fact, Watson, he really looked scared. And I think he's gotten to the point now, the addiction is so bad, he doesn't feel like he's in control anymore. And that terrifies him. You know how much he needs to be in control. And he's not. He can't focus on his work. He can't think clearly. All he can think about is getting high. Now, if we calibrate the doses right, we can probably keep him working at about 50% capacity, and that's good enough for him to get up and do what he has to do. But it's a lot of effort to try to tune and calibrate these dosages. I had a long talk with his doctor today after I had met with Sherlock. Doctor's also concerned, and doctor feels really strongly about this. Somehow Sherlock's been getting his hands on other sources of morphine. He's supplementing the dosages from Dr. Carter with contraband. He's doctor shopping or he's somehow getting this. We haven't figured that out. Dr. Carter has confronted Sherlock. He said, I'm worried about your health. We've got to do something about this. Dr. Carter's also confronted Sherlock about his suspicions and Sherlock admitted to him that he's been getting access to other sources of morphine. In fact, he broke down and said his life was out of control. And Sherlock was telling him, I can't function. I'm either high, which means I'm nodding off, I'm sleepy, I can't get anything done, or I'm coming off a high and I'm starting to get agitated and I can't concentrate. It's getting harder and harder for me to work. The bottom line is, Watson, let me put it this way, I really think he's ready for treatment. I'm not sure he'd be ready to start on Monday. Dr. Carter isn't convinced that that Sherlock would agree to go Monday but he's getting there. That's another reason I think he's willing to come back because I think he knows that he's in a scary and shaky place right now. And let me just say something as an aside. This isn't what Mycroft said, but this is just my guess. And I'm just going to add this. My guess is also that even though Mycroft may not have thought what I'm about to say through in his own head, I suspect that in some ways Mycroft felt guilty that by the time he went off to school, because he went off to boarding school quite young, he was about 11 when he headed off to boarding school, unlike Sherlock, who didn't go until he was 17. Mycroft gets off to boarding school right around the time that the parents are starting to get sick. So Mycroft gets the kind of structure and attention and limit setting that kids need to feel safe and to have some kind of framework for the rest of their lives. But then he leaves and the parents go downhill. And so he leaves her boarding school when Sherlock's about three or four. And for the next five or six years, Sherlock's in this vacuum where nobody is consistently paying attention to him, setting limits guiding him, disciplining him, and he never had that. And I think Mycroft at some level understands that. He feels like he should have done more to give Sherlock that kind of structure, that kind of guidance, even though it really wasn't his responsibility. But it's the kind of thing that we do feel guilty about. This is exactly the kind of thing we feel guilty about when we think about our roles in a family. It isn't always logical. We know that, and often we feel some guilt about it, and that's what's happening here, I think. In a sense, you could say that Mycroft is trying to do for Sherlock what the parents didn't. Before Mycroft leaves, he says to Watson, you need to pay attention to Sherlock's condition. You're going to be giving him a dose that is lower than what he's been taking, because obviously he's taking he's been taking the normal dosage that has been prescribed by his surgeon-slash-doctor, and in addition to that, he's been dosing himself up with illegally obtained sources of morphine. We don't know how much, but we can expect that you're going to see some signs, some symptoms of withdrawal. You can expect to see the, the traditional symptoms, anxiety, irritability. There might be some issues with sweating. That's often a symptom. Diarrhea, vomiting, aching muscles, that sort of thing. So keep track of that. If you think that he's seriously withdrawing, if he's not able to function, if he's showing serious physical side effects from opioid withdrawal or morphine withdrawal, then use your discretion. And if you think you need to give him a little more, that's up to you. Okay, we're done with that Thursday afternoon meeting. Now let's talk about what happens on the way home. So they're on the train, they're headed from this little town, Bishop's Castle, on this branch line, and they're going up to a town called Telford. And from Telford, they're going to get on the main line, go back through Birmingham and down into London, and they should be back by mid to late afternoon. On the way up to Telford, Watson has a couple of questions for Sherlock about the interview, the information that he obtained from this guy Thatcher the evening before Why didn't anybody else ever compare Thatcher's handwriting to the anonymous letter? Sherlock replies, because the anonymous letter was lost years ago. Obviously, what had happened was Sherlock had bluffed this guy. He didn't have an anonymous letter to compare it to, but he just took his chances and Thatcher believed him. If Thatcher had known or had the guts and called his bluff, then Sherlock would not have been able to use that. Then Watson said, what about this whip, this Shambok Are you telling me that the police lost the anonymous letter, but they kept the whip? Sherlock rolls his eyes and goes, of course not. The constable that was in charge of the investigation 20 years ago was such a moron that not only did he lose this anonymous letter, which was critical, but on top of that, he gave this whip away to somebody. Six months after the murders, he's like, well, we'll never solve this. And he gives the whip away to like his son-in-law or something and is gone. So Watson said, how did you get this, and how did you know what to get, and where did you get it? Luckily, the coroner had taken a sketch of the crime scene, and on the sketch was a little drawing of this whip. That was the only thing I had to go on. This constable that I've been dealing with up here in Bishop's Castle, the guy that's in charge now, he told me about it. He showed it to me. He, I've been corresponding with Detective Sergeant Graves for some time. I've been preparing to come up and do this interview, and I learned about this sketch. He traced it and sent me the tracing, and I looked at this drawing, this little sketch of this whip, and I knew, I have some knowledge about instruments of torture. You know how ghoulish I am, Watson. I remembered I'd read about something like this. I knew it was used in Africa. I have a whole shelf of reference books. I found a drawing of it. I found a little entry and I ordered one. London is an amazing place. Samuel Johnson said, a man who is tired of London is tired of life. You can get anything you want in London. It just took a little persistence. There are businesses in London that import things like this. So I got one. I marked it up, I took a file, I made it look like it had been around for a while, and then I sent it up to Graves and I told him to hang on to it and that I would pick it up when we got there. So that filled in the gaps for Watson, answered his questions. So that conversation is what occupied them between Bishop's Castle and Telford. They get to Telford, Sherlock's behaving fine. He's behaved fine the whole time. And other than a little bit of restlessness, a little bit of irritability, flashes of it over the course of three days... There were no other signs of opioid withdrawal. And as far as the restlessness and irritability go, he sometimes showed those symptoms anyway. Those by themselves were not necessarily proof of opioid addiction or withdrawal. So essentially, up to that point, Watson had seen nothing in terms of withdrawal or even he hadn't really seen anything in terms of Holmes being under the influence of morphine. And this struck him as a bit curious, but he wasn't going to complain about it. They get to Telford, and they have to switch trains. Sherlock stays within Watson's line of sight at all times. Watson's in control of luggage. He doesn't let Sherlock walk off with his bag. They get on the next train, and everything's good. Watson's starting to think, we're going to make it back. We're almost there. We've got another two, three hours on the train, and we're, we're back. The first big stop after Telford is a city called Wolverhampton, and they're getting close to Wolverhampton, there may be 15 minutes away from it, 10 to 15 minutes away from arriving at Wolverhampton, and Sherlock has to use the bathroom. Watson says, okay, but you got to come right back. I need you in the compartment before the train pulls in the station. Watson had briefly considered following Sherlock down and making sure he went into the toilet and standing outside, but he just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And as I said, Sherlock had behaved perfectly well up to that point. He had given Watson the impression that everything was fine. There were no symptoms, there was no craving, there were no issues with the morphine. Also, this would give Watson the opportunity to go through his bag because Watson had not yet had the chance to open it up and search it. So while Holmes is down in the bathroom, Watson goes through everything in, in Holmes's bag and everything's normal. No disguise, no large sums of money, no extra bottle of morphine. So Watson feels okay, and Watson is thinking, he looks at it, he pulls his watch out and looks at it, and he says, he's due for another dose in 15 minutes. I don't think he's going to take off 15 minutes before his next morphine dose. But 10 or 12 minutes go by, and Sherlock hasn't come back. So Watson starts to get nervous. And just as he's getting up and heading towards the door to go out into the corridor, the compartments had windows, and the doors between the compartment and the corridor would have a window. You could pull a shade if you wanted privacy, but during the day, most of the time, people would just leave the shades up, and that's what Sherlock and Watson had done. So as Watson's getting up and he's going to go down and see what's happening, he's going to go down and knock on the the door of the bathroom, he sees this old man. This old man comes into view, and he's stooped, and he has a beard and mustache, you know, full beard, sort of shuffling along. He comes to the door, to the compartment. He's in the corridor and Watson's still in the compartment. And the old, this old man looks, he kind of hesitates like he's maybe going to knock on the door or come in and then he moves on. And then he's back within like five or 10 seconds. And this time he does tap on the window or on the door. Watson opens it. But when the doors open and he has a closer look at the guy, he's got really pronounced buck teeth. You can't really take your eyes off them. They're like, they're like unusually prominent. And he's got tinted eyeglasses and he's bent over and his voice is kind of hoarse and low. Because of the buck teeth, there's like a little bit of a speech impediment. So Watson can't understand what he's saying. It takes like a minute or two before Watson understands what this guy's trying to say. And the old man's name is Mr. Littlefield, apparently. He looks a little nervous and he says, I'm looking for Mr. Lowe, which of course was Watson's, his alias on this trip. Watson goes, yes, that's me. What, what's wrong? Because, of course, Watson immediately thinks, you know, obviously Holmes has sent this guy up to me for some reason. What's going on? What is it? This old guy goes, well, I was walking up the corridor and I, you know, I was walking by the toilet and I sounded, somebody was in there and it sounded like somebody was really not doing well. There were these like sounds of distress. So I stopped, I knocked on the door and I said, are you Okay a man in the toilet, and he said, can you help me? My, my name's Mr. Thompson. Will you go up the corridor? He gave a brief description of, of you, Mr. Lowe, and he said, tell him to come down. I, I don't feel well. So Watson immediately heads down to the toilet, like he doesn't even let Mr. Littlefield finish, hurrying down towards the bathroom just as the train is pulling in. By the time he gets down the toilet and he's knocking on the door, the train is coming to a stop. He knocks. There's no answer. He knocks again. There's no answer. He opens the door. The toilet's empty. He turns, looks back up the corridor. There's nobody there. He runs to the end of the corridor. He looks. He, he gets out to the steps that go down to the station platform. He's looking in both directions. He doesn't see the old man. Nowhere in sight. And he goes right back into the carriage. He goes into the compartment. And of course, there's no Sherlock, but there is an envelope on his seat. It's addressed to Mr. Lowe, and it's in Sherlock's handwriting. Sherlock's gone, and he's left a letter. We'll stop here, and I will talk about the letter that Holmes wrote to Watson and left in the compartment next time. We'll talk a little bit about what happened after Watson had read the letter, He comes back to London and finds Detective Inspector Lestrade from Scotland Yard waiting for him. So please join me next time. I look forward to it. And until then, take care.